Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Amen and amen. Beautiful, beautiful. Who is God? That is the greatest question that anyone will ever ask. Who is God? Today, our final in our great series, God is Wrathful. Now, we have taken a six-month-plus journey, and it has been the longest of any series in all of my years of ministry. And that, to me, is awesome because it's the greatest subject of all, and that is God, His attributes, His personality, His nature. Uh, it has been a thrill to me. We have examined the greatest subject of all, our wonderful God's attributes. And I want to say I'm grateful to each of you. You've been uh, just uh, great listeners. And maybe more important, you've been great doers of the truth. Now, and for those of you uh, that have watched our family online, we love you and grateful for you. Hope that you're getting a blessing out of it. Thank you for your emails and notes that I get from you. Now, next week, we are going to start a, a short series. And we're going to base it on Paul's very important declaration that he made to the Corinthian church that we serve a God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. Now, I like comfortable things. I love comfortable shoes as I've gotten older especially. I just pretty much can't do uncomfortable shoes. I love comfortable chairs. I sit in a, one of those... Uh, Folding chairs around here for a little while, i got to find a good soft chair, I will tell you. I love comfortable things. But of all the things that are comfortable, I am glad that we can find our comfort in God. The God of all comfort. And so, we're going to talk about the comfort of the second coming and the comfort of His Word. And so, I'm looking forward to this series. Now, as we look back for a few moments here about our series on who is God. Let's talk for a moment about some of the ground we've covered. God is eternal. Therefore, His promises have no expiration date. God is faithful. 100% of the time, you can depend on God. God foreknows all that's going to happen. While He knows what's going to happen and amazingly puts it all together, at no way does he destroy human responsibility or our accountability. God is good. He's a good, good God, as the chorus says. He is. That means he is fully involved for the good of mankind and the good of the universe. Why? Because he's intrinsically good. Time would fail us this morning because we have so much to cover, but our God is holy. Our God impartial, infinite, just, loving, long-suffering, merciful. And then, of course, those three great attributes that most people know, if you've been in church very much, he is omniscient, he's omnipresent, 
And our God is omnipotent. He is sovereign. And we took two weeks to really examine the absolute beauty of the sovereignty of God. And then we have done a few things that maybe you've never heard of. God is transcendent. He's just way above anything we ever think about. He is always truthful. And our God is a wise God. And so now, our final chapter in our expedition, this, this morning, is perhaps, concerning God at least in his attributes, the most forgotten doctrine in the modern church. I dare say, very few of us have heard even a few mentions of the wrath of God. And I would say, it's likely that nobody here, or at least a few, have heard an entire message on the wrath of God. One entire sermon devoted to the truth of the wrath of God. Now the reasons, of course, for this are not hard to find because of our human nature. Our human nature is such that we don't like to think about our end, our demise, or death, or things like that. And the thought is, frankly, this is more than just political correctness. A recent study found that our brains actually shield us from thinking about anything that is categorized as death or unfortunate like that. Dr. Ziderman at Bar Elon University in Israel, and I quote, humans have a primal mechanism. I'm not sure I would use the word primal, but here's what they said. They have a primal mechanism that when the brain gets information that links itself to a topic like death, like something like we don't like or pictures, we just don't believe it. It goes against the grain of our biology. Biology says we must and we will stay alive. That's what supposedly biology says. And so in this study, what they did was they took volunteers and they flashed faces up on a screen and then linked to those faces. They would put words like uh, that suggested death, like funeral or burial or died. And so people would look at that and they would measure the, the brain waves and they could see that people would link those two. Okay, that person died, that person had a funeral, they would link them. And then they would show that particular person's own face and then put the words death. And in every case, humans that would disconnect. And that is because they felt like, this was their study that they came up with, was that human nature is that death is something that happens to somebody else, not me, not my loved ones, not us. It is just by nature, our biological makeup, that we don't like to think about death. In fact, what they suggested is that most humans are on what they call the escape treadmill. We have this sense that we are too busy to die. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm checking my email, I'm checking my phone, I'm working, I've got projects, I have vacations, I have things to do. We're just too busy to even consider the fact that I might pass away. Now the truth is, I don't think it takes a big study for us to know that human nature is such that we don't like hard truths. We like anything but that. We want a sermon about love or peace, anything certainly but wrath or judgment or death. 
And frankly, I would rather preach a message about God's love or God's peace. Other than this fact, other than the fact that I love God's word so reverently, and frankly, I love you. I love people. So many people ask me why I'm in the ministry. I say, well, because I know God called me, but the frankly, the truth is I just love people. I do. I love to see marriages strengthened. I love to see lives transformed. And because of that, I want to then give the truth of God's word. Now in today's world, speaking about the wrath of God would make us to be a narrow-minded church, judgmental, hateful, and God help us, intolerant. And especially in a woke state like California, this is not a popular thing to be called a church that talks about the wrath of God. And frankly, on a biblical level, it is difficult to wrap our heads around some of these really strong messages of Scripture. And the very fact in our mind that some very nice people might someday have to suffer an eternal hell, well, frankly, that's hard to understand. Even though it is a very clear and common topic in Scripture, we often don't think about it at all. Many Christians, in fact, feel like they must apologize for this doctrine. Maybe, in fact, it's almost a blemish on God's character. Others think that God's wrath is inconsistent with his love. And maybe this morning you brought a friend or you asked somebody to listen online. And you might feel a need to say a word of apology after the message is over and say, you know, uh, well, you know, I, we wouldn't have thought that we would have a whole sermon on the wrath of God. Well, let me just say this. Please, as your pastor, never apologize for God's word. I just tell you, especially if it's presented accurately, if it's presented lovingly, and I hope to do both of that this morning, then we want to know about all that God says. There is no way to talk about the attributes of God without talking about his wrath. I mean, it would be an incomplete series, certainly an incomplete book, if that's where this leads to. And I would say I would not be a faithful shepherd. I would be a hireling if I did not deliver to you the clearest possible way and with the deepest love in my heart. And for those of you that are tuning in, please understand the same thing. I love you deeply. And out of the greatest respect for God, I this morning submit to you humbly this message that God is wrathful. And this morning we're going to examine that. And so let's pray together and ask God's wisdom and his grace and mercy as we go through this topic. Let's all bow our heads for prayer. Father, I thank you for this topic. Lord, how I uh, shudder at the, uh, just uh, the ominous nature of it. And yet, Lord, though my human nature doesn't like it, Lord, there's something inside of me, deep in my spirit, deep calling to deep that tells me this is truth. <laughs> this is so true. Now, Lord, I thank you for a church like this that receives it. And thank you for those that are joining us online. God, give us your special grace as we look into this very important topic. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two facts about God's wrath that might surprise you. Two facts about God's wrath that might surprise you. First of all, did you know that the Bible actually says more about the wrath of God 
than the love of God. You would say, well, of course that's true. Uh, maybe in the Old Testament that God is wrathful, but in the New Testament, Jesus teaches only love. But I will tell you that is a false narrative. God, in this view, is seen as having matured and now sees the light. But consider John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus comes into the temple, encounters a bunch of thieves in there, defiling the temple. And so in righteous wrath, he walks into that temple, he braids a whip of cords, and he flips over tables and drives those greedy men and women out of the church like a, like a pack of dogs, just running them out of there. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Scripture is clear. And God shows his wrath. And when he does, it is always justified. He might surprise you that the Bible says more about God's wrath than God's love. Second of all, you might be surprised that Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven. Now, strange enough, Jesus not only references hell more, but he describes it more fully. For example, in Luke chapter 16 and verse number 23, Jesus said about hell, it is a place of eternal torment, eternal torment. In Mark chapter 9, verse 43, it is a place of unquenchable fire, unquenchable fire. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 42, the Bible says that people under the wrath of God will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret for having not submitted to the grace of God. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30, Jesus referred to the place of hell as a place of suffocating outer darkness, so dark that you absolutely cannot see any light. Can you possibly imagine? In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, Jesus compared uh, hell, the Greek word there is Gehenna. Gehenna was a trash deep dump outside the walls of Jerusalem. He said hell is like a trash dump where all the trash is and the maggots are there and the crawling and everything. He said that is exactly what hell is like. And so here we see Jesus describing hell very graphically. Now let's ask ourselves what the meaning of God's wrath might be. And I believe it's important, vital in fact, for humans to have an understanding, a good working definition of what God's wrath is. Because when a human has wrath, we think of, uh, you know, this uncontrollable anger or road rage. And that's just getting out of control anymore. But that's far from the truth about God's wrath. And I'm going to borrow a definition from Bible teacher David Hawking. And here's what it is. The wrath of God. God's wrath is his settled hostility towards sin in all of its various manifestations. Settled hostility. What does that mean? That means an established fact. It means God can't do anything else but that. It is part of his nature. God, because of his holiness, cannot and will not ever coexist with sin in any form whatsoever. God's wrath is his righteous hatred of all that is unholy. What God's wrath is not. First of all, God's wrath is not 
uncontrollable rage. It's not uncontrollable wild rage. It is always perfectly 100% justifiable. That's why the great apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. Where? From heaven. God's wrath doesn't come from this hellish, he gets ticked off or he gets, you know, someone cuts him off on the road or in the universe somewhere. No, God's wrath is revealed. It is very clear from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humans, men, women who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Notice it is not a blow up from the inside, but it is a settled sense of hatred against sin. God's wrath is not uncontrollable rage. It is not vindictive bitterness. Thank God for that. God is not snooty. God is not petty. In fact, if anything, he is exactly the opposite. Consider Ephesians chapter 4. Here the great apostle was speaking to the Ephesian church. And he said to them, he said, let all bitterness and all wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away. Now wait a second. Why would God, the Holy Spirit, give us the scripture and say that we should put away wrath and yet God is in fact proclaiming that he is wrathful? Well, one of God's attributes, as we have seen, is that he always tells the truth. God can't do anything but truth. He is consistently honest and truthful. Then if he says to put away wrath, but he holds on to it, then we can know something. It is perfectly warranted that he had that kind of wrath. And so God's wrath is certainly not vindictive. It is something that is warranted. It is not uncontrollable rage. And number three, it is not explosive temper. It is not God losing his temper and blowing off and, you know, just blowing things up. No. In fact, if the Bible is clear about anything, that God is exactly the opposite. He is slow to anger. Look what David sang in Psalm 103 and verse 8. The Lord is merciful. <laughs> Praise the Lord. We like sermons like that. The Lord is gracious. Amen. I love that. The Lord is slow to anger. Hallelujah. He's slow to anger. How many would say amen? They thank God that he's slow to anger. I would tell you this morning, you better say amen to that because how many times have we been told to pray or to have faith or, you know, to quit being critical or to have a bad attitude and yet how many times do we struggle with that? In fact, folks, thank God that he's slow to anger. He doesn't get mad. God is so gracious and yet he is full of wrath. What is wrath? Wrath is what happens when holiness meets sin. What is wrath? Wrath is what happens when justice meets rebellion. What is wrath? Wrath is what happens when righteousness meets unrighteousness. What is wrath? Wrath is what happens when perfect good meets evil deeds. And so as long as God is God, he cannot dismiss lightly those who dismiss and trample on the will of God. As long as God is God, he cannot simply wink at mankind and our sin. His wrath demands that he carry out a sentence on that sin. Now, I will hasten to say that we live in a day in this world where so many people are violating the things of God. So many people are just blowing God off, I will tell you. 
Thank God that he is a patient, loving, merciful God. Because someday he is certainly going to pour out his wrath. And that's why today we want to examine that. All right. Now let's go to the book of Nahum in the Old Testament. That's where we're going to kind of hang out for a little while this morning. And I ask you to pray as we go through here that God would give us a sense, a real understanding. It is challenging really to, in a message like this, to get a full understanding of the historical setting that was going on briefly, quickly, and uh, concisely, and a good overview. I hope to do that. The book of Nahum, of course, is one of the smallest books in the Bible. Being in the Old Testament and tucked there in the midst of the minor prophets, it is a often neglected book. It is, seems almost obscure. And because the nature of the talking is, if you're reading through the book of Nahum, you might like, oh my goodness, wow, God seems really upset. <laughs> he seems really irritated here. And uh, the sense of impending doom doesn't really resonate with the modern society. But let's get the sense here. We're talking 650 years before Christ. As you know, Israel uh, under David was under a monarchy. And the Lord willing, we're going to begin a new series on Sunday nights on 1 Samuel. We're going to begin to lay out about Saul and Samuel and David. Then Israel uh, had this great division after Solomon. And uh, it divided into the northern tribes, 10 of them, the southern tribes, two of them. And uh, known as Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel in the north was taken over by the Assyrians in 720 BC. The time we're talking about right now in Nahum is after that. So it, the northern tribes have already been taken away and replaced and repopulated. It's just a terrible thing. But Judah has been holding fast. Nineveh which is the capital of Assyria, which would include parts of Turkey, uh, Iraq, uh, Syria, Jordan, all those uh, places. Uh, all those, that is the Assyrian Empire. Now, God then in verse number one mentions this fellow by the name of Nahum. Let's go to Nahum chapter one, verse one. Hopefully you found it by now. That's the nice thing about these electronic Bibles. You can just go right to it. We used to have to tell folks where to find it. But anyway, all right. Verse number one, the burden of Nineveh. This is a, a deep message that has been placed onto the heart of Pastor Nahum, a prophet. Pastor Nahum has been given this strong message of God's wrath, in particular about the city of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. They have, they are like a world power. They are just, they just uh, terrorize everybody. Notice it says, this is the book or the sermon, several sermons really, of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. And we don't know much about what this word Elkishite is, but it's mentioned because it's likely in southern Judah, and it is right on the cusp of the DMZ, sort of. Imagine in your mind uh, someone living maybe in the, between North Korea and South Korea. I mean, you'd always be looking over your shoulder one way or the other. That's what they're saying here. So Nahum, this preacher, lived in this very 
volatile area where at any moment Assyria could come sweeping in. And God gave Pastor Nahum this message. And he said, I want you to preach it. And I will tell you, it was definitely not a popular message. His own king was a fellow by the name of Manasseh. And I will tell you, Manasseh is a piece of work. This guy is the most wicked, vile king of Judah. Judah, fortunately, had a few good kings. One of them was Manasseh's dad, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a tremendous man of God. Now, the northern tribes didn't have any good kings. They were all crazy. But, but southern tribes, Judah did. Manasseh, he was one of those guys. He took all the vestiges of their religious history, and he tossed them out. Tore down statues. Anything to do with God out of the public view. In their places, he put Baal. He, I mean, this guy was a... And in addition to that, in order to achieve the blessings of the gods, Manasseh sacrificed his own son. He was a wicked, wicked guy. And the crazy thing is, you talk about a great story of God's grace. Manasseh gets born again. He turns his life around and he, uh, God favors him at the end of his life. It doesn't, however, unfortunately, turn back all the great, the horrible things that he had done. So Manasseh is king. Pastor Nahum is preaching. Syria, a bit off, is this powerful force. Not a good time in Israel's history. And uh, at any moment, they could be taken over by this foreign country. Nobody in their right mind would have said anything about Nineveh. That'd be like criticizing the administration. <laughs> you don't say anything. They're not going to let you. Because it's called misinformation. And so Pastor Nahum said, I don't care. I'm telling you straight up. Nineveh is a wicked thing. And I'm telling you what, the wrath of God abides on Nineveh. And if God is going to come and he is gonna, he's going to do a number on the country, he's going to do a number on the, on the capital, and for that matter, he's going to take the king out. The king's name was Sennacherib. All right, and so that's the setting there. God is going to do what he's going to do, and so he boldly, gets up there. And I promise you, if Pastor Nahum would be today, he would be banned from Twitter. He'd be banned from YouTube. They would say, you are not going to be able to say that about our administration, about what we're doing there. I mean, they would have said, you can't do it. But I tell you, these prophets didn't care. They just gave it straight and clear. Now, as you look into the prophets, especially the minor prophets, always remember that they're talking about a future event, maybe a year, maybe a decade away, maybe a, a couple decades away. But they also have a secondary prophetic look, and that is oftentimes the primary interpretation of the passage, meaning this is talking about something that's going to happen in the end days, could be the tribulation period, and so um, we weave that into it. We're going to take the historical look at what's going on because I think it will give us some great Bible facts about the wrath of God. And so let me present them to you. First of all, four Bible facts about God's wrath from the book of Nahum. Number one, 
God's wrath is colossal. I'll have a little alliteration here, maybe to help you remember. It is colossal. The pastor sees God's ominous, terrible, furious, wrathful vengeance coming. It is, and when it comes, you are not going to believe it. It is going to be big, and it is going to it is going to be so amazing. Look at verse number two. Warning: Be warned, Assyria. Be warned, Sennacherib. Be warned, Manasseh. God is jealous. The Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth, in case you didn't get that, and is furious, and the Lord will take vengeance on his adversary, and he reserveth wrath, there's that word again, for his enemies. These are serious charges. Look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He's going to take his time here and will not at all, not at all, equip the wicked. He doesn't just look the other way. God demands wrath for sin. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and the storm. The Lord hath his way in storms. All these storms, all these fires, all the things that are happening, God has his way in that. The whirlwind, the clouds of the dust at his feet. Verse 6, who can stand before the indignation of God and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is purred out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Now remember now, these are lofty, large, poetical, prophetical words. As I mentioned, probably referring, maybe most primarily, to a future day during the tribulation. But they have a very definite, prophetical look at a few years from now. This is about, uh, uh, this is maybe a decade or so before Sennacherib and Nineveh actually goes down. So you can only imagine how they're going to say, Nahum, he's up there saying, I'm telling you. Nineveh's going down. That great city, it's going to be destroyed. They're like, yeah, right, sure. Go on back to the countryside there, Nahum. You did, you're crazy. But he was telling them it's going to happen. Why? Because God's wrath is going to take care of business. Seven different Hebrew words here used for wrath. First of all, jealousy. Jealousy. This means a burning zeal for a cause felt so deeply in the heart. This is not selfish, petty in any means, but a great concern for the, what God loves. God's wrath is jealous. God's wrath is vengeance. The second word listed in these verses, righteous vengeance and retribution. And then the word wrath. This word means a huge, just over-the-top, towering anger. Justifiable, but just big. Then the word anger. It is a word actually that means hot breathing. Seven Hebrew words all referring, describing the wrath of God. We're talking about this hot burning anger. In verse 6, the indignation. The word indignation. It is actually a word which means foaming at the mouth. Folks, these are picturesque views of God, aren't they? I mean, he's foaming at the mouth. He's burning with anger. Fierceness, the word is heat, and then fury, also a word burning. All of these describe God's colossal wrath. Folks, God is serious about his righteousness. How serious? Well, look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 11. We have veteran Moses as he was closing off his leader as the, uh, as the leader of, of Israel. 
He lovingly warned. And notice what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 11. He said, if you don't obey the word of God, if you don't put God first in your life, and then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you. Don't imagine that we can disobey the word and just get away from the wrath of God. I, I always am amazed when I meet people and some of the things they are doing with their life. I think, aren't you afraid of God's wrath? I mean, I just wonder what in the world are you thinking? Then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you and he shut up the heaven and there be no more rain. No more rain. No more rain. And the land yield not her fruit. Lest ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Folks, don't piddle around with God. He is serious about his truth. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't poke the bear? <laughs> and that's what happens when we disobey God's word. We're poking the bear. Like David Banner in the Marvel comics, The Incredible Hulk. Don't make me angry. You won't like me when I'm angry. And that's seriously God. God is saying, you don't want me angry. My wrath is something you don't want to experience. God's wrath is colossal. Number two, God's wrath is personal. God's wrath is personal. Here's another aspect of God's wrath. Sometimes we imagine, well, yeah, God has wrath against an evil group or a type of people. Or, but we don't get the sense that God particularly, personally picks out people and pours out his wrath on individuals. But, in fact, God does. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. Look what it says. There is one, this is a personal deal now, that cometh out of thee that imagines evil against the Lord. He is a wicked counselor. Now, history tells us that this is in fact, and scholars tell us that he is referring to Sennacherib. Sennacherib is the king who, when Nineveh falls, goes down. His man is wicked. I'm telling you, of all the wicked leaders of the past, none surpassed Sennacherib. He would skin people alive. He would impale them on poles, still alive, and then just set them out there to just die and get burn up in the sun. God gave Pastor Nahum a message of wrath to Sennacherib that Nineveh is going down. And in fact, it happened. You can check out history. In 612 BC, so now we're talking, Nahum is probably around 650. So about two or three decades later, Pastor Nahum's vision comes true. The impossible happened. Nineveh, the great city, is destroyed by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were kind of down a little bit more south, kind of where uh, Iran would be today. The, uh, the Medo-Persia Empire, as it's called. And they, were, they came in and they obliterated Nineveh. They wiped out the city so utterly that they didn't find the remains of Nineveh until 1842. I'm telling you what, those Babylonians did job on the country of Assyria. Look what it says in chapter 1, verse 14. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee. No more of thy name be some. Sennacherib, you're going down. <laughs> you're going down. 
And specifically, here's how it's going to happen. Out of the house of your gods, you're going to be in your temple. I'm going to cut off the graven image, the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. God said, I've got something against you, Sennacherib. You are a wicked, evil, vile man, and you're going to pay the price. And in fact, his own sons, while Sennacherib was in his uh, temple of his gods, his own sons, beloved sons, murdered him, stole the crown, and God's wrath was directed at him personally. Today we have a day when people say, oh, our God is a God of love, and, and uh, he wouldn't do such a thing. But folks, true, genuine love includes wrath against sin. Here we find God saying that God is personal. No wonder the great prophet in Hebrews chapter 10, whether that was Paul or whoever that was, said, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. A fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, when I was growing up, I was kind of a pyro. I loved fire. I don't know what it was. I just loved looking at it. I loved playing with it. I loved matches. And not always the best thing, I can tell you. But here's what I can tell you about matches and things that burn. Paper, dry little weeds or whatever it is, little sticks. Whenever something burning comes in contact, that which is flammable always gets burned. It is just absolutely a law. It's not that the match has anything against the paper. It's not that the match has anything against the, the dry weeds or whatever. It's just a law that when they come into the same vicinity, they're going to be consumed. Folks, in the same way, when God's wrath and God's holiness meets our sin, it's not that he especially uh, is angry at us. It's just that it is personal in the sense that he's going to take care of business. His holy wrath must and will. There is no compromise between sin and God's wrath. He must punish it. God's wrath is colossal. God's wrath is personal. Yes, sometimes personal. And number three, God's wrath is methodical. Folks, God's wrath is almost businesslike. It is disciplined. It is thorough. This particular destruction of Nineveh is especially noteworthy. Why? You may remember the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, God raised up another pastor. Jonah. He was a reluctant preacher, none to be sure. But he finally made his way to Nineveh. And when he was there, he preached the wrath of God. God the entire city, the greatest revival in the history of mankind, everyone in the city got saved. All of them. Because of that, God averted his wrath. So that was a hundred years earlier. Nineveh, the same city now that God said, all right, I gave you a reprieve and look what you've done with it. That was a hundred and more years earlier. And now Look what they, they have just rejected God. They've come against God. God says, all right, I told you what would happen. And it is just like a business. I'm going to methodically take care of it. Look at chapter two, verse one. He that dasheth in pieces has come up before thy face. I'm coming. <laughs> You're the, 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 the judgment of God is coming. Keep the munitions. 
get your supplies built up. Here we find the pastor, Nahum, kind of almost taunting Nineveh. He said, you better get your supplies. Watch the way. Post your guards. Make your loins strong. Put your best foot forward. Fortify thy power mightily. You better get ready because God is going to take you out. And then in verse 6, amazingly, another very direct prophecy. Verse 6. The gates of the rivers shall, that means will, and I love that old English word shall. You know, most legal documents have shall, shall not, because it's a strong word. The gates of the rivers shall be opened, and the palace will be dissolved. And history records that's exactly what happened. Nineveh was surrounded by these beautiful uh, waters and little river there, and history records that what the Babylonians came in, and they came right through that place where the rivers were and destroyed that city. Well, God thoroughly takes care of business. You maybe have heard the words, although the mills of God grind slow, they grind exceedingly small. An atheist farmer made fun of his local neighbor, a Christian, because he refused to work on Sunday, always giving his money to the church. And he came to his neighbor at the end of the harvest season. And he said, hey, friend, he said, uh, Looks like you've had a pretty good year. But he said, I want you to look at my crop. Look at what's happened to me. This atheist said, I have the best harvest I've ever had. You, on the other hand, well, you didn't work on Sunday. You gave part of your money off to the church there. And he said, I fared off better than you. And I didn't serve God at all. The Christian farmer wisely and lovingly said to him, I'm happy for you, but you need to know something, friend. God does not always settle his accounts in October. And it's truth, friend. God settles up maybe a little later, but God is meticulous. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul said in Revelation chapter 6, excuse me, uh, Apostle John, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? Here, God is saying, folks, God comes methodically. He will come. And they may hide, but you can't. He may try to hide, but you won't be able to. Not too long ago, we took a little trip to the Bay Area. It wasn't too long after that when I got a little official looking envelope in the mail and I opened it up and there was a picture of me in my car. And I was like, what in the world? And uh, I had gone through the Bay Area toll bridge thing there. And apparently I have my little credit card had expired or something. And so they were saying, you owe us. And I thought, good night. I mean, you can't hide folks from any of those. They're everywhere. That's how God's wrath is, folks. Colossal, personal, and methodical. Number four, it is eventual. Now in the last chapter, chapter three, Nahum reveals how irresistible. There is no escaping. People, I, I just, I mean, honestly, if, if it wasn't so tragic, it'd be just funny. Because like people just think, I remember talking with a man not too long ago, and I asked him about his faith in God. He said, I don't believe in that. <laughs> and it struck me so funny. I just thought, you don't believe in it? So that doesn't make it, that makes it not true, because you don't believe in it. Wow, that's, that is really smart. 
It's not true. There's no sun up there. It's not true. Okay. Wow. There is no escaping the wrath of God. It's not going to happen. Now in chapter 3, verse number 1, God is going to list the sins of Assyria. And God doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches. Woe to the bloody city. Murderous. And I will tell you straight up, folks. If God's wrath ought to be on any place, it ought to be on the state of California. We have murdered so many precious children under the nose and the guise of our governor and by that administration. Our country is a bloody country. I love America, but I will tell you, it is a tragedy. It is a travesty. Blood. Violence. It is a bloody city. It's a bloody state. All full of lies. Fake news everywhere. Robbery, doing anything for money. They pray departs not. You are a prey that will never get away from me, God is saying. They were paying, they were facing payday. The great Southern Baptist preacher R.G. Lee used to preach a famous sermon called Payday Someday. The idea is God may be slow, but I promise you, He always pays. He pays up. God said, Nineveh, Sennacherib, you're going to pay for what you've done. The sure wrath of God. You are going to be so scared. In fact, in verse 13 of this last chapter, he said, your men, by the way, the Assyrian army, bad dudes. Seriously bad dudes. I mean, they were the roughest, most terrible fighters. They were just incredibly uh, mean. God said, you're going to be so scared. Those soldiers, those big, tough men, he said in Verse number 13, they're going to be screaming and yelling like a bunch of girly men. Read it for yourself. He said, because God can make anybody lose their sense of who they are. Now look at verse 11. Thou shalt be, you think you're going to escape by getting drunk. Thou shalt be drunken. Okay, go ahead. Get drunk, get buzzed, get stoned, do whatever you want. So you can get away from the wrath of God. It won't help. Thou shalt be hid. You're going to hide where? You're going to hide in your alcohol and in your drugs. Thou shalt seek strength because of the enemy. You are so scared. You are so pitiful. You're going to even go to your enemy to hide there from God. He said, but no matter what you try. Look at verse 5. I am against thee. I am against thee. I'll tell you one thing, folks. I don't want... God to say that about me. I don't want God to say he is against me. God's wrath is irresistible. Maybe that's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, one of his first recorded sermons, what did Jesus talk about? The wrath of God. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7, he was talking to this religious group and he was saying, I'm telling you something, you guys are... You, you are so perverting the things of God. You are driving people away from uh, heaven. He said, it's terrible. He saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to him. Baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, you guys are a bunch of snakes. Who hath warned you? Now listen to this warning. Flee from the wrath to come. You better run because the wrath of God is coming. I'll tell you what, boy. Can you imagine this little upstart pastor, Jesus, who had just been baptized and starting his earthly ministry, and he tells these old uh, religious people that I'm telling you right now, the wrath of God is coming. You better flee the wrath of God. 
The Bible is clear. Any person that loves their sin so much that they won't give it up identifies with that sin. And eventually, therefore, God's wrath against the sin is against the sinner too. I remember reading of a man who was convicted of stealing. He argued a very strange defense to the judge. He said, my sentence is unjust. He said, the reason is because I didn't steal. It was my arm that stole. It would be unfair for you to judge me and send me to penitentiary when it was my arm that had done the stealing, not me. The judge listened intently and then he resolved the issue. He sentenced the man's arm to 30 years in jail. And then he told the man, if you want to accompany your arm, that's up to you. <laughs> and the fact is, and the point I'm making is, we become identified with that which we cling to. And if we cling to sin, then God judges the sinner with the sin. Now, liberals tell us we're haters because we speak of the wrath of God. We should only speak of the love of God. But the truth of God is that the wrath of God grows out of his great love. It is a manifestation of his love. In fact, the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, he that does not believe that God will punish sin will never believe that he would pardon it through the blood of his son. Well, let's look at chapter one and verse number seven. And with this verse, we come towards the end of our message. How can we escape the wrath of God? Nahum, Pastor Nahum said it's clear. By the way, do you know what Nahum means? How ironic. God sent a preacher by the name Comfort. <laughs> That's his name, Comfort. That's what Nahum means. To deliver this great message of wrath. Isn't that just like God? The Lord is good. How many would say amen to that this morning? The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth them that trust in him. Not in a creed, not in a concept, not in a religion. He knows those that trust in him. No person has to go under the wrath of God. And that's the message of Nahum. You can change Nineveh. You can change Sennacherib. You can change Manasseh. Turn from your evil ways and avert the wrath of God. This is a warning. Trust God. What does trust mean? T-R-U-S-T. It means totally relying upon scriptural truth. Amen. Trust. If I will trust, then just as Jesus said, you can have eternal life. John chapter 5, verse 24. Verily, I verily. Listen, listen. That's what that means. I say unto you, hear my word. Believe on him that sent me. You'll have everlasting life. And you'll not come under the wrath of God, the condemnation of God. But you will be instantly passed from death to life. Folks, it's not, it's up to us. We can have eternal life or eternal death. We can be under the forever mercy of God and grace of God or forever under the wrath of God. These wildfires in the state of California are terrible things. And I mean, it, I'm not sure the reason why, but it certainly has been getting worse. And we should pray. These are tragic times, hard times for so many people. Several have lost their lives even this year. And of course, a great 
tragic loss of so much property and the terrible thing. But there's something about all these fires that uh, anyone who is up in those areas will tell you, and that is you need to listen to the warnings. Don't play with the warnings. Don't play with the warnings about that burning, burning, burning that's coming their way. But if, in fact, you do get stranded and you're there without any ability to fight the fire, there is only one thing that you can do. Of course, pray. But there is only one thing that you can actually do if you're in that fire area. And that is you must go to a place where the fire has already come. And if you stand in an area where the fire has already come, then you will be safe. The reason, because it's already burned that area, it's not going to go back to that area. Folks, I will tell you this morning that when the wrath and the fire of God comes to sweep men into an eternity away from God, the only place that is safe is at Calvary. Because there at the cross... The fire of God was poured out on Jesus. Stand next to the cross. Stand next to the place that has already received the wrath of God. The fiery wrath of God on that cross. And you will be saved. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.